All right, so for starters today, I have a short video I want to show you, so Emily, go ahead and do that. Well, thank you, CNN. That was actually really helpful. Thank you. (laughs) So without getting too philosophical, the reality of something can't be changed simply because we want to change the definitions, because we say so. Something is what it is. So our question today is, what is marriage? And especially since 2015, when the now-famous Obergefell case in the Supreme Court legalized same-sex marriage in the United States. Can we do that? Does changing the definition or changing the laws change what marriage actually is? Now, of course, this had been coming for quite some time. For several decades now, there's been a revisionist view that's wanted to define marriage this way, as an intense emotional bond with another person that therefore seeks fulfillment with that person. Makes a lot of sense. We might be going, yeah, sure, yeah, okay. And honestly, if that is the definition of marriage, then if two people love each other, why not? And if after a period of time, one of them or both of them doesn't feel the same way anymore, then why not end it? That is the modern understanding of marriage. But there is a reason why the wedding vows have nothing to do with how you feel about the other person. Rather, it is a willful choice. You are committing yourself to him or to her. And for centuries now, Christians, but not just Christians, really almost all cultures, define marriage as conjugal. And by that I mean that it is the committed bodily union of a man and a woman that is then oriented towards children. Now, of course, that bodily union is more than just the union of their bodies, but it's also their emotions, their interior self. In fact, it's everything that they are as a person. Each spouse is giving the whole self to this other person. The bodily union, though, seals that gift of self. And it moves the couple beyond their love just for each other. It moves them towards another, towards children. And the Old Testament sums this up in some simple, beautiful poetry. The two shall become one flesh. So we're back to what we were discussing last week. If you weren't here last week, first of all, let me say, we have all of our our homilies online. And and even if you were, I mean, we're we're going through a lot of stuff. If you want to go back and listen to them, I encourage you to do that. Uh, But they're there online. If you weren't here last week, what we talked about, though, is that to be human is to be both body and soul in a profound union that forms one person. So building on that, we can also say this, that the body and it alone is capable of making visible what is invisible, the spiritual and the divine. In other words, our bodies are saying something visibly. They communicate the invisible reality of our souls. So let's talk a little bit about body language, right? I don't have to say anything to you. 
if I cross my arms and start frowning and glaring at you, you know something's going on inside of me. And the opposite, if I would open up my arms and smile to you, I'm, I'm saying something else. During this homily, if you start sitting there and going like this, you'll be saying something to me, right? We speak with our bodies. So if that's true, what's the body language of our sexual actions? Powerful, right? Very powerful. And the positive, such beautiful, intimate, self-giving. When I give you my body, I'm giving you my heart. I'm giving you me. But on the negative, also powerful, heartbreakingly powerful. When we use our bodies to speak lies, if I use you or abuse you, there's a reason why it hurts so much inside. In the Christian understanding, marriage is a complete gift of the self to the other. It is the complementary union of a man and a woman for the good of the couple and for the procreation of children. And that union is consummated. Think of that word, consummated. It's summarized. The whole life of the couple is summarized, or we could say it sort of reaches a summit in that bodily, profound union they have. We'll call it the marital embrace. But there's a reason why we humans don't just simply reproduce. There's a reason why we call it making love. Because that's what our bodies are speaking. A much deeper, invisible truth. Our bodies speak love. And to take it one step further, as Christians, we specifically believe that the visible sign of a human marriage points to the marriage which we heard about in our readings from both Isaiah and Paul's letter to the Ephesians. Human marriage gives us a picture of the relationship that God wants to have with us. As Paul said, Jesus is the groom, and we, his people, the church, we're the bride. And what does Christ do? He gives the complete gift of himself to the bride. Look at him there, arms outstretched to us. He's giving himself to us. And what does the bride do? She, in turn, offers herself to him. In the Eucharist, we hear, this is my body given for you. And what are we going to say? We lift up our hearts, as Paul would say in Romans 12. We offer our bodies as a living sacrifice to him. So every marriage, every earthly marriage, every couple, they image this. They're a picture of this. And they, and they actually participate in this divine love. It's a great mystery. So not only does their one flesh union join them together in a communion, but out of that, their one flesh union, that marital embrace, means that they can be co-creators with God. Think about that. Co-creators with God. That out of that one flesh union, you can get another flesh. <laughs> a child. So hopefully now, hopefully, we can see that this is not homophobia. This is not hate talk. Same-sex marriage is simply not possible. Changes to the law can't change the reality. An apple is an apple. This bodily union of persons is simply not possible between a man and a man or a woman and a woman. 
they may in fact love each other. They may do sexual acts with each other. But it's not the marital embrace. And those sexual acts are closed to the gift of life. This doesn't mean men or women can't or shouldn't experience deep and profound love and intimacy with their own gender. We're made for that too. Brothers and sisters and friendship. But intimacy does not have to be sexualized. We all need love, do we not? And we all need to love. So for those of us who do not feel a same-sex attraction, we must truly empathize with how particularly difficult this would be. Let's say you have someone with homosexual desire or inclination, but they believe what God says. And so they know and they understand this is disordered, this isn't right, so they're trying the hardest, their hardest not to act on those feelings. Will we be there for them? With deep, unafraid, intimate friendship and companionship. Will we help them? Will we be full of grace if they struggle or even if they fail? Isn't that what we all need, right? Isn't that why we're all here? Or do we just say to gay people, well, you know, too bad for you. You just got to be celibate. That's just the way it is. And then we go about our merry little selves. We just go home and to our spouse and our children and live our lives and abandon them. Or even worse, be hypocrites. It's really easy to treat this as if it is the sin, is it not? I mean, Christians do this all the time. And the gay community has rightly called out our hypocrisy. Oh, those terrible homosexuals. Yeah, well, what are we doing? Really? We love to condemn them, right? But at the same time, we violate the dignity of the marital sign ourselves. I mean, unfaithfulness, that's not the sign. Sleeping around is not the sign. Living together outside of marriage is not the sign. Watching porn and doing sexual acts by yourself, that's not the sign. Using your spouse's body to satisfy your own lusts and your own urges, that's not the sign. Closing off our bodies to their life-giving potential, that's not the sign. A marriage that's so damaged and so wounded that the spouses can't even think of coming together, that's not the spine. Sign. Divorce is not the sign. None of it is the sign. All of that is less than what God has intended for us. All of it's disordered. And all of it is all of us, right? At least it's me. We're all disordered. We're all in this mess. Now maybe we can see why it's so important And why it's so interesting that of all the miracles Jesus did, his first miracle was at a wedding where he turned water into wine. What's this all about? Well, you heard, they ran out of wine. And so I guess we could all say, so to speak, we've all run out of wine, right? In fact, we haven't just run out of wine. I would say to you that we're chugging vinegar. If we think that God and the church are against sex, Nothing could be further from the truth. We may think that God is repressing us, right? He packed us full of desire. He packed us full of hormones. And then he says to us, don't do it. 
unless you're married, and even then, don't enjoy it. It's just to make babies. Is that your view of God? Is that your view of the church? I mean, sometimes, to be honest, the church has given that impression. But just like we sang in that opening song, what the church, the Spirit, the Holy Spirit, and what the church does, she invites us to come, come and see that God has something much, much better for us. But we don't want to listen. So we, what we do is we rebel. We want to do it our way, right? So we indulge our every whim and our every desire. And then we wonder why we end up brokenhearted and why we're lonely and why we're incapable of intimacy as we go from person to person to person to person. We wonder why we end up with diseases, why there's sexual misconduct, why families are disintegrating, and why children are unwanted. The truth is, God is not repressing us. We've accepted far less than what He wants to give us. We've been chugging vinegar. He wants so much more. I love to tell couples as they're getting ready to get married that the vows they will say at the altar before God when they give that willful, faithful, fruitful, total gift of themselves to this other person, that every time they then enter the intimacy of their bedroom, they are renewing those vows with their body. Anything less than that is to speak a lie with your body. It's vinegar. It was the custom at the time of Jesus that the bridegroom would provide the wine for the wedding. Those of you who have paid for your daughter's weddings, you're like, man, what happened to that custom, right? (laughs) But the unnamed bridegroom at Cana ran out, just like we all run out of wine. And what Jesus does, as you heard, he transforms the water into wine. And if you did the math, it was an overabundance, 120 to 180 gallons of the finest wine. I mean, think like silver oak or something like that. But it's a sign. What Jesus is doing at this wedding in Cana, he's acting like he's the bridegroom. He's providing the wine. But he also says, my hour has not yet come. Because you see, Cana is the sign that points to Calvary. I mean, here's the hour, right? Here's the hour. In fact, here's the wedding. It's hard to think of Calvary and what happened at the cross as the wedding. But it's also interesting that when we get married, we want to come to a church and stand, the couple wants to stand underneath the sign of his crucifixion as they give themselves to each other. But there at that cross, Jesus, once again, just like he did at Cana, talks to his mama and he calls her woman. He's not disrespecting her. She, in fact, represents the woman. She's the new Eve. She's the new bride. She's the church. And Jesus is the man. He's the new Adam. He's the groom. Remember the story how God took from the side of Adam the rib and he made the woman? What happens at the cross? The side of Jesus is pierced and out comes water and blood, which are the two great sacraments of the church, holy baptism and holy Eucharist. This is how the bride and how the church is made. And at that wedding, what does the groom cry out? but I thirst. And what do they give him? A sponge full of sour wine, vinegar, our vinegar. The bridegroom willingly drinks our vinegar. 
But this is the good news, friends. We give him our vinegar, and he in turn gives us the finest of wines. We give him our vinegar, all of our disordered desires, all the mistakes that haunt us, all the regrets we have, all the disappointment, all of our broken hearts. And he says, no, come here and drink deeply of an overabundance of the finest of wines. He wants so much more for us. We settle for so little. We settle for a fleeting moment, a quick gratification. But our sexuality is a gift And he wants us to experience the fullness of that gift. He wants to heal the wounds that we're carrying around in our hearts. And he wants to reorder our lives according to his plan and his design. For those of us here who are single, we are called to abstinence. Because what we are doing is saving the total gift of ourselves for another person. We're not spreading it around to everybody. And if it so happens in life that God doesn't call us to earthly marriage, then what we can do is offer to him our celibacy as a sign that we are called to the heavenly marriage. I've known some beautiful people. They forego earthly marriage. It's as if they're already living in the heavenly marriage, but they're living it now because what they do is give a total gift of themselves directly to Jesus and they live their lives completely for him. And for those of us who are married, or maybe someday will be married, what he wants for us is for our marriages to also be a sign, a beautiful, joyful marriage that points to the marriage that's coming. See, what he's doing is he wants to take the joy of heaven that's coming and sort of backfill it into our lives. I mean, you do realize that heaven in scriptures is described as this great big wedding banquet filled with joy and dancing and food for all eternity. And what God wants us to do is to have a little bit of heaven right now, a little taste of that feast to come. My brothers and sisters, if we want this, Then his mama, Mary, gives us the best advice. Did you hear what she said? Do whatever he tells you. Are we willing to do whatever he tells us? Or are we just going to do it our own way, right? The Bible, the scriptures of God, his word, it's always good news for us. Even when we don't want to hear it. When his word says, don't do this, Or don't do that. It's because this or that, it's a bunch of vinegar. Don't drink it. If this is what we would really want, if this vision is saying, oh, that's what I really want, this is what I was made for, then my friends, we gotta stop drinking the vinegar. This means we gotta repent. Maybe the Lord's laying something on your heart today and you're like, you know what you're doing, you know it's not right. Stop it. Stop it. And ask for his forgiveness and ask for his grace and say to him, Oh, Jesus, please, I'm sorry. I'm sorry for the mess that I've made. Please help me. Please help me. He knows it's a struggle. He knows it. But he has so much mercy and so much grace and so much forgiveness and he wants to give you so much more. And maybe some of us are sitting here and saying, Yeah, that sounds great, but you know, I'm gone. I'm too far gone. I am too damaged. Don't say that. Never say that. Never say, he can't fix you. And those of us whose 
minds are twisted and disordered, don't say he can't help you. We must repent, friends. Repentance means we've got to come to him and say, Lord, I am so sorry. Please help me. And the beauty is, if we would just give him our vinegar, he will give us the finest wines. In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit. Amen.